We know that Americans had the most and best of everything. But is it possible that our health care is not one of those items? I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you're listening to Book Club on ReachMD. With me today is Dr. Robert Pearl, CEO of Permanente Medical Group, and is responsible for the health care of 4.8 million members of the Kaiser Permanente Group. He is also on the faculty of the Stanford Medical and Business School and is the recent author of the well-received book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Health Care and Why We're Usually Wrong. Thank you, Dr. Pearl, for joining us today. A pleasure to be here. To begin with, what prompted you to write this book at this particular time? There were many factors that prompted me to write it. I'm concerned about the American healthcare system, which I believe is failing, and I'm concerned that hundreds of thousands of people die every year unnecessarily. I'm committed to transforming American medicine, which is why all the profits from mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care, and why we're usually wrong, will be donated to a charity, Doctors Without Borders, to help improve health care around the globe. But the opening chapter, and maybe the catalyst for my completing it was the death of my father. My father, Jack Pearl, was an amazing man, the son of two immigrant parents. He worked his way through college and dental school. In World War II, he could have stayed safely behind American lines, but he volunteered for the 101st Airborne, parachuted on D-Day behind enemy lines. He and his troop were captured by the Germans, who had a daring escape through the dark forest at night, bringing everyone back safely. He was truly what Brokaw calls the greatest generation. He was a man who didn't need much sleep, four to five hours a night at most, until one day he became tired. Went to the physician, diagnosed with a hemolytic anemia, probably secondary to a drug he was taking, and he required a splenectomy to improve his red blood cell count. The operation went fine, but my father lived in New York half of the year and in Florida half of the year, and he had great doctors, all of whom who knew he needed a pneumovax, but the ones in New York thought the ones in Florida gave it to him. The ones in Florida thought New York, primary care thought specialty care, specialty care was sure primary care, and in the end he never had it. So my dad came out to visit my brother and me, my brother's chief of anesthesia at Stanford, and had dinner at my house, slept with my brothers, and my brother woke up at 5 o'clock the next morning for rounds, found my father unresponsive on the floor. My father spent four days unresponsive in the ICU, three weeks in the hospital. He didn't die during that episode, but he did die from complications that followed subsequently. And of course, the diagnosis was pneumococcal septicemia. One of 200,000 people that year, one of 300,000 people every year who die from a preventable medical error. And I think that that was the emotional part that went along with the intellectual knowledge that we're going to have to do something very different in the United States, we want to preserve American medicine and return it where it needs to be. If you point out, the American healthcare system is failing compared to the other 20 most industrialized nations of the world. We're in the lower half. A girl born in Seoul, Korea today has a life expectancy of 90 in the United States, 83. We're last in life expectancy, second to last in childhood mortality. We don't offer the conveniences we demand on the rest of our lives. We don't have our medical information all in a single computer system. We can't email our physicians, make appointments online, 
schedule a video visit. All the things we demand and everything else in our retail travel business is missing in healthcare, and hundreds of thousands of people die every year. That was the source of the book. We think we're getting great health care. We're usually wrong. So we're certainly spending a lot of money. We have the most expensive care in the world. And yet, as you say, our data doesn't substantiate this investment. How do we change this? How do we explain this discrepancy? So much of the research that I did for the book was trying to look at that discrepancy between the objective data and the subjective sense that we're the best in the world. I looked at psychological research from decades ago. It couldn't be done anymore. Ethics committees would never approve it. I looked at behavioral economics and the most recent brain scanning studies. And I found the same pattern. Context shapes perception and changes behavior. Think back to the Stanford Prison Experiment that we all studied in college. Zimbardo takes regular, normal student volunteers. Half of them be assigned to being jailers. They get aviator sunglasses. Half become jailees. They get OR greens with a number. He puts them together to try to improve conditions in American prisons. Within 48 hours, the jailers see the jailees as criminals, as they inflict debasing punishment. They make them clean toilets with their bare hands. And the jailees see the jailers as sadistic. They board up the doors against them. Within six days, the whole experiment gets canceled because the psychological damage is too great. Everyone in the experiment knows the other people are volunteers. But the context shifts that perception, and they see these people differently. And we see that in American medicine. I mean, think about the fact that almost 100 studies have been done now that show that physicians, when they go from hospital room to hospital room, a third of the time they fail to wash their hands. Now, every physician knows about hospital-acquired infections. Most of them have to take courses on it. They all know that the cedipacil is not transmitted through the air. It's carried on hands. It's carried by someone, but yet they don't wash their hands. The number one preventive approach to avoiding it, because when they're late to their office, when they have an extra patient to be seen, that context shifts perception and they don't see themselves as capable of carrying that bacteria, no more logical than it was in the studies of Zimbardo. And to me, another great experiment, and one I talk about in Mistreated, is the one of Barry Marshall, a very famous experiment. He's a pathologist in Australia, in this particular hospital. He did a moderate amount of surgery, this was 1990s, for ulcers, both stomach and duodenal. Uh, and he saw surrounding the ulcer cavities, 90% of the time in the stomach and 80% of the duodenum, bacteria. What we now know is H. pylori, but at the time they weren't exactly certain what it was. He figured out what it was. He published the results. Certain medical practice would change. Nothing happened. He then did the most classic experiment I think ever, ever done, which is that he first put an endoscope down his mouth and looked at his stomach and showed that he did not have any ulcer. He then goes to the bacteriology lab, he gets a petri dish of H. pylori and drinks it. He rescopes himself and proves that he has a stomach ulcer. Yours is, this is the cock postulate, the foundation of infectious disease done as well as it can be done, and it takes 15 
15 years until he wins the Nobel Prize for Medicine before American medicine changes. Prior to that, two-thirds of the people, in spite of having published this data, were still doing partial gastrectomy for stomach ulcers. And it wasn't until he won the prize that American medicine changed. The data was all clear. 30,000 papers were published. Not a single one has questioned his findings. And yet, practice didn't change because context shapes perception and changes action. For a surgeon who's been used to doing a partial gastrectomy, the idea of this now becoming an infectious disease that needs antibiotics simply can't be true. Well, he did go ahead and take antibiotics. I don't want us to think that he went on to have an ulcer. He did take antibiotics and did uh, get rid of his uh, H. pylori. Why is it so hard for doctors to change even if data suggests better care? You use in your book an excellent example of getting blood lactate levels if you suspect sepsis and how much better patients are if they're treated early. Why is it so difficult? And I have to, as a disclaimer, say I'm a pre-baby boomer. So I'm part of that group of people who I identify as being very difficult to change when we look at data. No, I don't think it's you or any other group. I think this is how the mind works. They've actually done quite a number of studies on the brain while people are in a functional MRI. And what you see in the MRI is that in times of great fear and reward, and medicine has both, you see an immediate activation of the reward center or the fear center of the amygdala, and then you quickly see their simple lobe kick in and change perception. A great example of this was in the Stanford wine experiment, where they took volunteers, put them in a functional MRI, and asked them to compare two glasses of wine. They were kind enough, of course, to leave the price tag on. One said $50, one said $5. What subject didn't know is that actually it was the same wine in both bottles. Now, you ask them which is the better bottle, they're going to say the $50 bottle. If you look inside their brains, what did they see? They actually stimulated the reward center dramatically more with the $50 bottle of wine, even though the aroma, the grapes, everything else is exactly identical. This is the power of context to shape perception. For the example, you asked about sepsis. So the problem, and remember, we're now going back probably close to a decade. Dr. Rivers has already published his data coming out of Wayne State. What we understand is that early aggressive intervention is going to be effective at saving lives. We understand that the intermediate lactate can indicate a group of people, and if you treat them all aggressively, now, today, we don't treat quite as aggressively. We know more things about it. But at the time, it was pretty aggressive. You had to put a central line in. You had to risk an injury to the lung. You had to put in a huge amount of fluids. At that time, the potential existed that some of the people coming in with the intermediate lactate level could actually get harmed by the doctor, even though more lives would get saved. Objectively, every human life is the same. Subjectively, perception-wise as physicians, if we harm a patient and kill a patient, even though the treatment saves three of the people who would have lived, we see that one death as being more significant than the three. Studies have been done on this. You look at people who've been faced with the situation of having to push an innocent person over a railing to save a train and save a dozen lives, and people are going to resist doing it. That action of creating the problem changes what otherwise is a numerical, logical piece. You look at American medicine today, what's the most common operation done by orthopedic surgeons? It's going to be an arthroscopy of the knee for someone who has an old injury. 
several studies have been done, extremely well controlled, that have shown that arthroscopy of the knee with meniscal trimming and other small changes inside the knee, along with physical therapy, is no more effective than just physical therapy alone. And yet, it's the most common operation done in orthopedics. Why is that? Because if that's the source of your income, how you see it shifts. As you know, the various societies had choosing wisely. Look at the recommendations coming out of orthopedics. None of the five of them actually relate to orthopedics. It's not that people don't know these things. It's just that in the context of a fee-for-service world, context shapes perception and things that the data would say are not going to add value. The surgeon is going to say, well, maybe in this case it's different, and the behavior is going to be going ahead and scheduling the surgery. That's why American medicine doesn't change. We think that it's data-driven, scientifically driven, and a lot of it is. But what we fail to recognize is the way that perception can change the way we see the world and change our behavior just as significantly or not change it just as significantly as the data itself. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Book Club Reach MD, and I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. And joining me today is Dr. Robert Pearl, and we're discussing his very provocative book, which all physicians and I should say patients should be reading, called Mistreated why we think we're getting good health care, and why we're usually wrong. And we've been talking about the physician. What about the patients? You know, we hear patients who might have gone through not the most ideal of care. And if you ever question them about leaving that doctor or even questioning that doctor about his availability to electronic medical records or the newest data, they say, I would never do that. It's a, a concept of what we would call anchoring bias. Would you comment on that and how that may interfere with doctors accepting new protocols? So the anchoring bias says that when you see something in a particular way and you're presented with data that agrees with it, you embrace it strongly. But when you see equivalent data that contradicts it, you're most likely going to reject it. So a good example of this was President Clinton. After he finished his two terms, he moved to New York where his wife became the senator, and he had symptoms consistent with coronary artery disease. Now, remember, the Clintons were the ones who started health care reform. They certainly had access to a variety of individuals, and they probably knew that the state of New York publishes data on the 35 hospitals that do this type of work. He chose the hospital for his evaluation that had the second worst outcomes among the 35. And then when he required surgery, he went to the one that was at the bottom from the surgeon whose complication rate was the highest, and he, was, and he had a complication. The bias that he had, I'm sure, had to do with the name of a facility or maybe a friend of his went there, but that's not the way we should be doing medicine. It's a scientific basis. These are very well-controlled studies, risk-adjusted, that tell us where the best outcomes are likely to go or to happen. That's the problem that we have with this idea that perception often trumps, and I don't mean that in a political context, data. So going to the example you're giving, every physician knows that if you don't have the right information, your chances of coming up with the right answer become less. 
What we know is that if your electronic health record, first of all, you don't have an electronic health record at all. You certainly have no information. But if you have an electronic health record, but it's only in your own office, you don't have the information on all the other physicians caring for that particular patient. There's no logical way that you can believe that the care you're going to provide is going to be as good as if you have that information. And yet, when you start to look at the ways that it costs a lot to install a system, and very often the current systems slow physicians down, you're not able to fully incorporate that data into your determination and take the steps that are necessary to purchase and install and connect with your colleagues an information technology system. It's true for patients as well. Once they pick a physician, they're not likely to leave that individual until the data is so overwhelming that they're going to have to make that change. Because as you say, that's the anchor bias. They made the choice. How could they not see this person as being one of the world's best? And I think for physicians, the same situation happens. Once they're used to seeing a fee-for-service world, as an example, as being the way that they can be most successful in getting paid, moving into a capitated system becomes very hard to accomplish and therefore very hard to see the value. Overall, American medicine, contrary to what we want to believe, is very slow to change. But we noticed the Rand Corporation looked at how long does it take for a major improvement to happen to become common practice? 17 years. We're in an internet world. The information is available often before it's even published. It's available to us online. But the way that our brains work is that we're going to hold on to the past, and it's not generational. It's simply the way the human brain has evolved over the past 30,000 years. Your book spent some time, and I thought it was an excellent discussion. I certainly learned a lot from it. When we look at the Affordable Care Act, and I'm sure you and I could talk about it for a long, long time, but before we leave, could you just give us some takeaways about what you perceive as good about the bill and what the public has to ask their representatives to do to improve it without having the pressure of the legacy players which you define as the insurance companies and medical societies and drug and devices industry interfering. So the Affordable Care Act was put in place by President Obama, along with congressional support, obviously, to do two things. Number one, to expand the pool of those who are covered. And coverage is very important. If you don't have health insurance, you can't get great care. And that coverage has got to be affordable and that coverage has got to be covering those things that people are going to get. Because again, if you have to pay so much out of pocket, you're not going to make that happen. And the bill did that very, very well. And the most recent voting has indicated that the overwhelming support of people around that expanded coverage made it impossible for the Republican-controlled Congress to repeal it. But the biggest problem, I believe, in American healthcare today is not the coverage issue, it's the delivery system. It's the delivery system that is broken. I wanna say system. Doctors work very hard, in fact, probably harder than they shouldn't. They're reporting a third being depressed. They're talking 58% would not tell their children to go into medicine. 400 suicides a year. Doctors are working very hard 
and suffering as a consequence of the broken system. So it's the system that's broken. And what I mean by that, and I talk about it as a roadmap to the future, four pillars, care has got to be integrated, both horizontally within a department and vertically between specialties. When you're integrated, your perception changes and care becomes more coordinated and collaborative and better results achieved. It's hard to believe that people can think that by seeing others as competitors, you can do as well as when they're on the same team with you and you can work together for the same ends. It can't be reimbursed fee-for-service. Fee-for-service is a broken system that simply rewards volume. How we move from a volume-based system to a capitated system so that physicians have an accountability for a panel of patients, for a group of patients, and they're able to work with them, not in order to get paid for intervention per se, but actually to prevent disease, to avoid complications, to minimize medical errors. We need a comprehensive electronic health record that not only makes the information available, but presents it to every physician because if my father's dad, doctors had had that, they all would have given him the Pneumovax. And finally, I believe it needs to be physician-led. Doctors are just not going to take the chance of changing and following hospital administrators or health plan insurance executives. They just don't trust them. But if you put together those four pillars, integration, capitation, technology, and physician leadership, and much that was built into the Affordable Care Act was going to move in this direction. As an example, the Medicare Advantage, rewarding those programs that achieve five stars, the highest performing ones, very hard to get five stars without moving towards those four pillars. Or the exchanges that were now going to make data transparent and provide information to patients. So many things were built into the legislation that I believe President Obama thought that by the time he finished his eight years, and I think he believed very strongly that a Democrat would follow him for eight more years, that the American healthcare delivery system would evolve to catch up with the insurance system. Because the problem is that every insurance system will fail if American healthcare continues to rise at a cost that is double that of our ability to pay, whether you want to look at the GDP or you will look at tax revenue at the federal level. And that's the challenge I think that we have in America today. We're caught in the middle. We haven't figured out how to move from fee-for-service to capitation and prepayment. What we realize is that if we're going to lower the cost of healthcare, we're gonna end up with fewer hospitals and fewer specialists. And that is not a change that we want to see happen. But if we actually wanna solve American medicine, we are going to have to go through that evolution. That pain will be great, but I believe that at the end, not only will patients be better, but the health of America will be better. Why I wrote the book, and I hope that um, everyone will read it who's listening. I welcome their feedback. I know not everyone will agree, but I'd like to hear from folks, start the debate, because I believe that when people understand, with patients and doctors, what they don't have today, they're going to start to want it. And when they want it, they're going to start to demand it. I wrote the book ultimately for the patient and all of us. I certainly agree with you. This book certainly leads us towards looking at our own faulty assumptions and evaluating data in order to provide a healthier society, and I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. This is Dr. Maurice Pickard, and if you've missed any of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com 
slash book club to download this podcast and many others in this series. Thank you for listening.